really, really glad you're here this morning. Thanks for joining us and thanks for taking your time to do this. I want to begin this morning by reading a benediction that comes at the end of one of the Apostle Paul's letters to a group of Christians. He says this at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Father, this morning we ask that you would speak. We give you permission today to do what you must to continue the work of making us holy, of sanctifying us, of setting us apart in character and purpose of making us yours. Lord, I pray that today would be a reminder to those of us who have a connection with you and are walking with you. God, I pray that you would remind us and and bring it to life. Lord, for those of us here today who have not decided and we don't really have a connection with you, maybe we have tried being religious or spiritual, or maybe we're still standing on the outside because of doubt. I pray, Lord, that you would speak beyond words today and that you would communicate your heart and your purpose and your love to us. Uh, Stir us, Lord, and communicate in a way that we can understand. strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. So we start this morning by acknowledging the danger. We're we're going to take a kind of a high-level view this morning, and what we're going to do is look at a couple of big-picture perspectives. We've been talking, those of you who are with us, you know, we've been talking for the last five weeks about personal holiness. And we've said that personal holiness is really being set apart by God for his purposes, to be part of God's flow on the earth, but also set apart in character, to be like him, to be what we were designed to be. And uh, today we're going to take kind of a big picture look at a couple of different big principles, kind of life principles that relate to holiness. Now when you talk big picture like that, sometimes it loses its power because you don't speak with very much specificity. You don't, sometimes we don't know what that means for us on Monday or Tuesday. So I've prayed this week for those of us who have a connection with God and we're walking with him, that today would really be a reminder. And he would use it as leverage this week to get into our minds and hearts and that it would make a difference on Monday and Tuesday. And I've especially prayed for those of us who don't have a connection with God, that somehow through today he would communicate himself and that Jesus would show himself as he is to you. Principle number one, holiness is God's work in us. Now we're going to be flying around and touching down on a couple of different places and all of the scripture will not be on the screen this morning, but some of it will be. But principle number one, holiness is God's work in us. It's what he's doing. So I I want to illustrate that the way Apostle Paul does. I want to begin by looking at the process of salvation. So I'm going to read from Titus. Titus is a little letter at the back of the New Testament written by Paul to a young disciple. 
And I'm going to start with a paragraph in chapter 3 and then go back to a paragraph in chapter 2. And again, all of this is in service of the point that holiness is God's work among us. First of all, when you hear that principle that holiness is God's work among us, let's acknowledge, first of all, that, it's, that holiness is what God's doing. This is his work, holiness. It's not making us happy. It's not even giving us greater faith. All of that is wrapped up in the principle of, of holiness. What God is doing is making us holy. But second thing I want you to hear in that principle is that holiness is God's work among us. It's what he's doing. It's not our great effort. Even though we spent the last three weeks talking about what we do to participate with him, it is essentially God's work. Well, I'm going to give you a model in a minute to think about how that works. But principle number one, holiness is God's work among us. And listen to this from Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. So let's do this just to make sure we're awake. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. And we're going to look at Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. And here's what I want you to hear here. I want you to hear how the process of salvation works. And then we're going to back up to chapter 2 and get the Apostle Paul's hint that holiness, that holifying us, and the Bible uses the word sanctification for that, that that process is really the same thing as the process of salvation. So listen to how Paul describes our connection with God. Verses 3 through 6. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and desires and pleasures. This was before we had a connection with him. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, for many of us, our tendency is to think, really, it wasn't that bad. But in God's eyes, it was. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. You may be seated. Okay, so first of all, God saves us, and let's pause for a second for dramatic effect and note that word that God saves us. This is Paul's way of describing our connection with God. He, he talks of it as a salvation. And I think this indicates a couple of things. Number one, it indicates what a dramatic life change happens to us when we get connected with God. And secondly, it indicated what a mess we were. We needed intervention. This wasn't a little adjustment. We needed to be saved. And then he answers in this brief paragraph three critical questions about the whole business of being connected to God. Why? Why did he save us? What? What is this salvation? And thirdly, how? What was the mechanism? So first of all, why did he save us? He makes it clear it's not because of our goodness. It's not because of our righteousness. It's not because we had it together. It's not even because we were seeking him. He saved us because of his mercy then what? What is this salvation? Well, essentially, it's a washing, it's a cleansing of rebirth and renewal. And you get the impression that these guys are ransacking the language to look for images that will describe just how dramatic the change is in our lives when we get confronted by God and He fills us. We're changed. We talked three weeks ago and two weeks ago about the radical change of identity. Identity that happens in us because of our connection with God. That's what this salvation is. 
It's a renewal. It's a rebirth. And then how? What's the mechanism? Well, the mechanism is by the Holy Spirit. His Spirit intervening in us, through us, changing us. Now I'm going to jump back to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Here's what I want us to see when we look back to Titus 2. I want us to see that the operation of saving us and sanctifying us, God's process of making a connection with us, and the process of making us like Him, of sanctifying us, of holifying us, it's the same process. In fact, notice Paul links the process of sanctifying us to the process of salvation. They're one and the same. So now let's hear Titus 2, 11 and 12, and at the risk of being obnoxious, let's stand again out of reverence for God's Word. Yes, you like it, don't you? Okay, Titus 2, 11 and 12, listen to this. I want you to hear how he connects the salvation operation, God's operation, God's rescue operation of Ed Allen, where that operation goes. It is the, also the process of being made like him. So he says in 11 and 12, chapter 2, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It, that means the process of salvation, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Amen. You may be seated. So that means that God's connecting to us and drawing us in, building within us a relationship with Him, is not just about giving us a ticket to heaven. It's about making us like Him. It's one and the same. It's one process. What He began in us, He will bring to completion, Paul says at another point, to another group of Christians. He's not trying to get us into heaven. Oh, and by the way, I sure hope they become better people along the way. His work in us is remaking and renewing us. His work in us is our sanctification. This work begins with rebirth and renewal and continues throughout our journey with Him. This is why a desire, don't miss this, this is why a desire for holiness is a necessary part of salvation. If God has done a work in your life, then you have a desire to grow in Him. You have a desire to be a better person. And I'm speaking this morning to the person that has had a connection with God for a long time and are wondering why Things aren't better in your life. And I, I want to speak some hope to you this morning and let you know God is working in you and your desire, your longing to be a better person, your wonder why I'm not further along is a work of God itself. I also want to speak a word of warning to some of us and to some of us who are parents who, or, or we have relatives or friends who, you know, they had a certain point where they felt religious for a while and they made a connection with God or they might even made a decision. Hey, hey I, I want to do that with my life, but there's absolutely no desire in their life to pursue holiness. There's no desire to change. That person does not have a connection with God. If you have a connection with God, then a part of you longs to be more like Him. You long to be more like what you were designed to be. You long to be more of your best self. If there is no desire for spiritual things in you or someone that you know, then chances are they don't have a real living connection with God. Because holiness is the work that God is doing in us. I'm going to use some technical theological language here. Holiness is not a necessary condition of salvation. It doesn't mean you have to be holy in order to be connected to God. Those of us who have connections with God, there's still places in our lives where we're a mess. 
we know it. If that were the case, that would be the whole business of being connected to God would be about our effort. It would be about work. And Paul, of course, preaches repeatedly against that. But as a part of salvation, as a part of the connection process, holiness is a critical sign that the life within us is real life. Did you listen to the Psalm 15 reading that Jeree led us in this morning? It's kind of intimidating. Of course, it's, it's a poetic expression. It was a song that they used to sing. But still intimidating. Jeree, you know, cute Jeree, happily read, Who may dwell in his holy place? And then did you, you remember that long list? Basically, the one who doesn't do anything wrong, who treats everybody great, who's wonderful and awesome and doesn't mind sacrificing even when it hurts. You know, if we're honest, we read that list and go, good grief, that's not me. That's the work God is doing in us. He's making us those kind of people. Let me give you a couple of models for, we've done this before at Gateway, but it bears repeating. A couple of models for thinking about our spiritual life. How is it that we're connected to God? What does it look like? Again, I feel like both of these principles this morning could be sermon series in and of themselves, especially this first one. We spent three weeks talking about what it is that we do in order to be more connected to God, our participation in the holiness activity. But we haven't said much about God's activity, and that is, of course, where it begins. And his activity is behind all of our activity. So we're giving this short shrift this morning, but I, I, we can't leave this topic without acknowledging. Principle number one, God, holiness is God's work among us. So let's look at three different ways of thinking about our spiritual life and how we do our spiritual life. How is it that we do our connection with God? One illustration of that might be to think about your life as raft living. In raft living, you're out in the stream on some kind of flotation device and you're, you're just following the flow. You just go along with the current. You try to position the raft so that it at least catches the current and when it catches the current, you follow the current. You go along with the flow. Now look, raft living can be very active but it's at the whim of the current in our case. It's at the whim of culture and circumstances. So we go through life, doing our life, driven by circumstances and the culture. Again, for raft living, don't necessarily think of you know, stretching out on the river and just flowing. It can involve swim team schedule and band practice and house cleaning and work projects and getting kids to school and getting kids home from school and evening meetings. It can be a very, very active schedule, but it, it is an extremely passive spiritual environment. It moves at the flow of the culture and of the circumstances. And when terrible circumstances present themselves, then I respond to those circumstances either with anger or frustration or depression or worry. Because I live at the whim I'm driven by circumstances and the culture around me. So the culture around me is constantly bombarding me that I need to get the new car or update my clothes to the latest fall fashion and I need to get my kids involved in a thousand activities because otherwise they're getting behind 
raft living. A second model for how we do our life and how we do a connection with God might be, let's think of it as rowboat living. And in rowboat living, you're grabbing the oars and you're making it happen. You're not just following the whim of the current. And of course, in rowboat living, rowboat living is filled with activity, frenetic activity, trying to make your life happen. Look, in rowboat living, you're trying to go in the right direction. But all of your activity is usually in the service of control. It's active spiritually, but it's not living. The spiritual activity is not life-giving. You're trying to do good things and be a good person, along with swim practice and softball practice and band practice and getting the kids to and from school and, and cleaning the house and finishing the project at work. But it's not life-giving. It's about you maintaining order and control and you working really, really hard to move your life in the right direction. We've got to make this decision because there's no other alternative. And so, let's row over here. Final model for how we can do our life is sailboat living. And in sailboat living, you look for the wind. Sometimes there's intense activity, but it's always activity in the service of the wind. It's activity in submission to the wind. It's activity of, in search of the wind. And in this case, of course, the wind represents the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Because God's work in us is holiness, and holiness is God's work in us. Oh, I wish we had time to give a lot of practical examples, but you're smart people. So I commend that to you to, for your own cogitation to think about how it is that you might be raft living or rowboat living. And what does sailboat living look like for you? Of course, the challenge of our lives is to figure out how to get out of the rowboat and off of the raft and into the sailboat. Because holiness is God's work in us. So principle number one, holiness is God's work in us. And if it is, then our life is going to look like sailboat living. Well, if holiness is God's work in us, that brings us to principle number two, then why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult to look and act like God sometimes if it's his work in us? Holiness is difficult work because our holiness is opposed. Principle number two. We often live like we have been invited to a country club or to a playground, but it's clear from the picture that Scripture gives us that, and it's confirmed by our experience, by the way, that we've been invited to a battlefield. We have been parachuted behind enemy lines. And the enemies of our holiness, according to classic Christian theology, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me give you one passage of Scripture that outlines that for us as clearly as we find it anywhere. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through the first part of verse 3. Listen to what Paul says again to another group of Christians. Paul says this, As for you, again he's talking about our former selves. He says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. When you followed the ways of this world. And the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The ruler of the spiritual realm the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
He's talking here about a personal, malevolent, spiritual force whom we used to align ourselves with. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. We called these last week our death-inducing desires. Again, we should sometime take an entire series to talk about the enemies of holiness, but let's do it quickly this morning and just give an overview. And I hope for those of us who have a connection with God, today is a a reminder, a little wake-up call. If you don't have a connection with God, I have prayed that God would somehow use this to speak to you. Number one enemy. I'm going to read from Jesus' words in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus, this is the last night of his life, and he's praying, and that prayer is recorded for us. John 17, verse 15 says this, My prayer is not that you take them, and them is us. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It's clear from Jesus' prayer that he knew Satan would be active in our lives. He knew that our holiness would be opposed and that we would need protection. James, we spent this summer working through the book of James, which was written, you remember, by Jesus' brother. And James at one point gives us a, a very clear and very straightforward instruction about what to do in this area. This area of the opposition that's presented to us by the malevolent spiritual force that that sets himself against us. Uh, James says this, Look, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will come near to you. I think in the process of doing our spiritual life, whether we're on a raft or in a rowboat or on a sailboat, even if we're on a sailboat, I think in our spiritual lives we face a danger if we allow our thinking about the devil to be led to either extreme. On the one hand, we can ascribe too much blame to Satan for our failings and difficulties, and we get too specific in our understanding of his dealings. I've known Christians who seem to know more about Satan's dealings than the Bible knows. On the other hand, we can ignore him. Some of us may even wonder about his existence, whether this is really seems kind of weird and spooky, Ed. And I want to suggest to do so is incredibly naive. The Bible is unanimous and clear. There is a malevolent and personal spiritual force which has set itself against God, and because we are aligned with God, he means to harm us. Both of these dangers can lead to us getting stuck spiritually. We can end up pursuing the wrong solutions and praying the wrong kinds of prayers if we over-ascribe or if we don't recognize and refuse to see his work. Look, if you're being attacked by Satan, it will do you no good to try harder or to get therapy. If you're living out of your anger because of past hurts, it will do you no good to resist Satan. So you have to recognize what enemy you're dealing with. First is the malevolent spiritual force that sets itself against us. Our holiness is opposed. The second force that sets itself against our holiness is the world. And that phrase, the world, is used in a couple of different ways in the Bible, but 
the way in which we're talking about now is, you know, kind of the culture around us, the soup, the atmosphere, the habits in which we live. I want you to listen to John's words. Jesus' best friend, John, put it like this. In John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful person, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Uh, The norms around us, the soup in which you and I find our lives, this is the world, the the cravings, the lusting of our eyes, the boasting and the pride of what we have in our accomplishments, basing our lives on that stuff. So what of the culture around us, around you and I? Well, you'd have to have lived in a cave for the last couple of decades not to know there's been a consistent assault on godly norms in our culture. There's been an assault, let's just, we could mention many ways, but let's, let's mention three. I think there's been an assault, a consistent assault on modesty, especially uh, sexual modesty. Walk through the halls of your local middle school and listen to the language and, and look at their dress habits. Then examine what they're able to see regularly on television. These standards would have been unimaginable just 15 years ago. I think there's also been an assault on simplicity. You know, God intends for our lives to be very focused and very simple, easy to live. But there's been an assault on simplicity. For example, the average new American home in 1970 was 1,700 square feet. Today, the average new American home is 2,400 square feet. And by the way, it accommodates smaller families. We want more. We're not leading simple lives. There's an assault on simplicity in our culture. I think there's been an assault, thirdly, on integrity. In record numbers, Americans assume that their politicians are lying. (laughs) I imagine most of us do. Assume it. We're not surprised by it any longer. We assume it. More of us are having affairs And I read last April that more of us admit to cheating on our taxes than ever before. There's been an assault on integrity. Our culture is not friendly to holiness. And it wears on us like water against a rock. For our part, we must, to use Paul's words in his letter to the Romans, we must not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. We must not be conformed to the pattern of the world around us. To resist this assault, to not allow ourselves to be conformed, we will have to practice what we talked about here at Gateway for the last three weeks. So if we're going to resist the devil, and if we're going to resist the influence of the world around us, we're going to have to understand and act on our new identity, which God is bringing to life in us. We're going to have to practice Christian ritual, rightly understood. We're going to have to not let our own benefit become the primary motivator in our connection with God. We talked about these for the last three weeks. We're going to have to make ourselves slaves to God. And we talked about how in the same way that we used to be slaves to our desire, we planned for them, we meditated on them, we longed for them. These are the things that will make me happy. Oh, if I could just get the granite countertops in my kitchen. 
In that same way, we make ourselves slaves to God. We plan for being with God. We long for Him. We put our hope in Him is the way the Scripture describes it. And we meditate on Him and the things of Him. We think about Jesus, God's full expression of Himself. We make ourselves a slave to God. And finally, we said two weeks ago, we refuse to follow our evil desires. So speaking of that, that brings us to enemy number three. What we've called our death-inducing desires. Peter, another one of Jesus' great friends and one of his students, said this to a group of friends and followers of Peter's. Peter said, look, dear friends, chapter 2, verse 11, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, that's who you are, you're not part of the system. You're aliens and strangers to the system. You're not driven, you're not on a raft, driven by the whims of culture and responding to whatever the circumstances are with whatever set of emotions emerge in you. You're shepherding your own heart. You're taking care of your own heart. You're guarding your own mind. You're not at the whim of culture because you're an alien and a stranger and you recognize that. You understand it. You're able to act on it. He says this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires and don't miss this, which war against your soul. We've had much to say about our evil desires over the last two weeks, but let's remind ourselves that all of our desires are not evil. Peter isn't talking about desires that bring us pleasure. God created pleasure. He's talking about our internal resistance to obey God and to put self-interest above God's interests. These desires, death-inducing desires, these desires often seem pleasurable or convenient, but they're really waging war against our soul. And in the moment, we don't realize it because we grab for the convenience or we grab for the pleasure. But they're waging war against us. This is why in another place, Paul tells us they're death-inducing. They lead to death. We must abstain from these desires. We must refuse to follow them. Jesus went so far as to say this. Look, if your eye is causing you to move away from God, gouge it out. He wasn't advocating voluntary blindness, but he was suggesting that sometimes violence must be done to our habits if we're going to resist death-inducing desires. That's why those folks that find themselves in CR programs, in Christian recovery programs, and if, if you have an interest in Christian recovery, Paul and Leanne Howdershell are not here today, but they would love to talk to you about it. Eric Saunders would also love to talk to you about it. Eric, raise your hand if you would. Eric's in the back. It's a program of repentance. It's a program of support and repentance that leads people out of habitual sin, which is redundant because sin is habitual. But it's a program that helps us do our part in participating with the, the work of God in us because the desires that prompt us, that move us, that we used to live in, those desires lead to death. And we have to cut ourselves off from those desires in order sometimes to be free. So that's why sometimes when people enter a program like CR, they completely change their habits. They can no longer even go to certain places or be around certain people. They've recognized that that eye is causing me to see the wrong thing. I've got to gouge it out. Violence sometimes has to be done to our habits, to our patterns in order to break those habits and patterns because these death-inducing desires wage war against our soul. They are an enemy of our holiness. 
So holiness is God's work among us, principle number one. And let's, Gateway, let's not forget that. It's what he's doing. If he is at work in you, then he's faithful to bring it about. But secondly, let's realize that it's not easy because our holiness is opposed. Our holiness is opposed by our own sinful desires. Our holiness is opposed by the world around us that's constantly leading us in a direction that's not consistent with having a connection with God and with walking in His way, with living a life that Jesus would call blessed. And it is opposed by the enemy of our soul. It's opposed by Satan. And to not recognize Him may feel to you supremely sophisticated, but it is instead supremely naive. He opposes us. And sometimes your life does not progress in the way that you expected or in the way that you're hoping or even in the way that you've prayed for because you're being opposed by Satan. And therapy and working harder will not help. I've got some recommendations. If you'd like to do some more work in this area, I want to recommend a couple of kind of academic works that'll help you think about this rightly, help us think about this rightly. Uh, One of them is a book called Holiness Rediscovered. It's by J.I. Packer, one of those brilliant British evangelical theologians. This work was written a number of years ago. Uh, Trisha Lee gave me this book recently, and it's excellent work on just understanding holiness and understanding God's work in our, our lives. Another book that does the same thing that's even more practical is a book called Pursuit of Holiness by a guy named Jerry Bridges. And I'll throw these up this week on, or actually I'll have Aaron throw these up this week on the Gateway Facebook page, so you can find them later if you need them. A third resource that I would recommend, if you'd like to dive a little bit deeper into the opposition, into the enemies of holiness, is a work that I referred to a couple of weeks ago that Ray Schmidt recommended to me. It's a great work called The Utter Relief of Holiness by John Eldridge. So if you want to do more work on this, please do because we've only touched the surface to give exposure. All right, let me end this morning by, if I can, uh, indulge me. I want to take into uh, my own personal devotion time recently. So yesterday, my devotional time had me reading Matthew, which is one of the biographies of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, some of you know, is known by folks who read and study the Bible as the Sermon on the Mount. This is the longest section of teaching anywhere in the Bible from Jesus. It's absolutely brilliant. And I was blown away and captured uh, yesterday during this devotional time as I was reading Matthew 5 because Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, starts out with, some of you will be familiar with this, it starts out with the Beatitudes. And I wasn't going to read this, but let me just read that section of it. So... I'm minding my own business yesterday, and God reminds me of this. Disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying this. He's he's up on on a hillside. He says, blessed, so when you hear that word, when you hear Jesus say that word, think about it this way. That's like him saying, you're in the right place. Your life is in the flow. And you have this connection with God. And some of you who have had a walk with God for a while, you know what I mean. You know what it's like to be in a spot where you just, maybe not all the circumstances are going great, but you feel God's hand on you. You feel the sense of His connection with you and His closeness to you. So He says, Blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You see how upside down Jesus' perspective is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A sign of God's activity in us, by the way, right? If there's the absence of hunger and thirst for righteousness, it may be that we don't have a living connection with God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, hungry and thirsty for being connected to God, for righteousness and living my life rightly. Merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, persecuted because I'm in a connection with God. And when I'm this, Jesus says I'm blessed. And it struck me, (laughs) as I was thinking about this yesterday, it struck me. This is part of the reason that I don't feel blessed more often. Because I'm blessed... I have God's blessing. I have that sense of connection to Him, that flow to my life when I'm poor in spirit, when I'm a mourner over what's wrong with the world and over what's wrong with my life and over my own family and over my brokenness. When I'm meek, when I place myself under others. Meekness is strength veiled and gentleness and service. When I hunger and thirst for righteousness, when I'm merciful, when I'm pure in heart, I'm without guile. There are no ill motivations in me and no manipulation. When I'm a peacemaker and not an arguer, when I'm persecuted because I'm connected to God, then I'm blessed. And what I often find myself being is busy. I long to be important and good-looking and influential and smart, and accomplished, and athletic, and wealthy, and classy. That's how I want people to see me. You're all thinking, good luck, Ed. But that's how I want people to see me anyway. And as I long for those things, as I'm busy, as I'm lusty, as I'm trying to be those things, my life is not blessed. And I'm pursuing a pathway that God will never bless. I'm in fact pursuing a pathway even if I take the first two or three or four steps, that pathway looks good and wide and broad. It looks convenient. It may even look pleasurable. But in the end, it leads to destruction. And when I pursue this path, I'm on the pathway of blessing. Here's what happens. I get several steps down this pathway and I begin to realize that, wait, 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 wait. This isn't all I bargained for, but... Often what you and I do is we go all in even more. Well, okay, the problem must be that I just don't have enough. I just need more of this same stuff that's led me to where I didn't exactly want to be. If I could just have more of it, then that would do it. And then maybe I'm one of the fortunate ones who ends up with more, and it's not satisfying. If it were satisfying, then Hollywood would be the happiest place on earth. Instead, it's Disney World. No. Folks live deeply broken lives. 
if this led to life, people like Robin Williams would never kill themselves. Those desires are death-inducing. And this business over here, busy, lusty, important, good-looking, influential, accomplished, wealthy, classy, this is what the evil trinity wants me to be. (laughs) The world and the devil and my own death-inducing desire go all in over here. And God says, no, in a gentle whisper, God says, no, no, no. Over here is the path of blessing. Let's pray. Father, first of all, we acknowledge that you're doing a work in us, and that work is to make us more like you. You began it by capturing our heart and planting something brand new deep inside of us. Brand new. A whole new identity, a whole new way of looking at ourselves in the world and reality. And that just gave birth to a new set of desires. Desires which put us on the path, God, of being like you and being who you made us to be, being our true selves. Looking like Jesus. God, we acknowledge this morning and we confess that we have not always pursued those newly implanted desires. We have continued at times to lean into our death-inducing desires. It felt comfortable. It felt known. It felt convenient. It felt pleasurable. It helped us make it. It helped us forget about pain or it kept us entertained. Whatever, God, for a lot of reasons. And we're deeply sorry. We confess that we have sinned against you. And then we've gone further in, thinking that maybe we didn't sin hard enough. We needed more. We ask you to forgive us. We also acknowledge together this morning that We can be forgiven because of the work that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. So we thank you that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just. You'll not only forgive us, but you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's like the slate is clean once again. And I pray that we would sense that this morning. And Father, we also acknowledge that your work in us is posed. And we have been too often too naive in our approach to our own spiritual development and not recognizing that we have enemies. We've been far too casual about our own spiritual development and our connection with you. We've not even recognized how much was at stake and how difficult it would be. So this morning we do, we recognize. I ask, Lord Jesus, that your spirit would protect us from the evil one. I pray this morning for specific ones of us here who are now being attacked physically or financially or in our thoughts, or in relationships. I pray for the protection of Almighty God. I pray that you would strengthen arms and legs that have grown weak and enable us to resist the enemy of our soul. And Father, I pray for clarity in our vision and our understanding so that we can not be conformed to the pattern of the world. Help us to recognize the pattern and stand against it and be transformed by the renewing of our mind and our thinking. And Father, finally we ask that you'd set us free from our death-inducing desires. Give us victory. Strengthen 
Again, strengthen the arms and legs that have grown weak. Strengthen our resolve. Lord, some of us have been tempted to think, oh, this will never change, or I'm not changing, or I've been at this a long time, and it still feels like this. And Father, I pray that you would rescue us from that, that you'd fill us with your life this week, that we would experience you this morning. Hear us, Lord.